If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 45. As we saw last Sunday, Joseph was reunited with his brothers, the brothers who had sold him into slavery. More than 22 years after they had sold him, they come to Egypt seeking to buy grain because there is a famine not only in Egypt but in Canaan as well. And after two tests, and we saw this because Joseph wants to know, have these men changed? Are they just as vile as they were when they sold him into slavery? Um, After these tests, Joseph reveals himself to them. Um, So he says uh, in verse 3, I am Joseph, is our father, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then he does something which we will see, Lord willing, at the end of Genesis. Is he says, listen, you guys did this, okay? You sold me, but God sent me to Egypt. So this is in uh, chapter 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years they will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. So there is human freedom. They chose to sell their own flesh and blood into slavery. But then we have divine providence. This was God's plan. God is in control. Both exist at the same time. One does not cancel out the other. You sold me. God sent me. And why did God send him? To preserve the people. To save a remnant. To save your lives by a great deliverance. And so he gives them instructions. To hurry home and bring their father down to Egypt. Their father, the household, the animals, everything. Lock, stock, and barrel. They are to move to Egypt. Verse number 15, And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. It's an amazing story. But the instructions that Joseph gives is followed by a royal invitation. And so we'll begin reading in verse number 16. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded And he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he said to his father, sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. I mentioned this last week. I read it toward the end. This is one of my favorite parts of the narrative um, because the ten brothers are going back to bring Jacob down and Joseph says, listen, okay, you're going back. Don't quarrel on the way. Uh, The truth is going to come out now. Joseph is alive. The brothers sold him into slavery. Are they going to start pointing the finger at each other and say, well, it was his idea. It was his idea. You went along with it. Don't quarrel on the way. So verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced 
my son Joseph is still alive and I will go and see him before I die. He is stunned. There must be many questions. But in the end, he is convinced and he has decided to go to Egypt. A father and son will be reunited. Now there's something that you may have caught here at the end that we will now see when we get into chapter 46. And that is as the writer, Moses, writes the story out, he keeps shifting names between Israel and Jacob. Jacob is the name that uh, Isaac and Rebekah gave him when he was born. Israel is a name that God gave him after a man wrestled with him uh, at night. And you find that it goes back and forth, but there is a reason for it. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. They also took with them the livestock, their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. And Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt. He took with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. If you've been with us, if not, let's sort of remind you of something. Jacob is living in Hebron. Beersheba, which is about, uh, let me see what I have here. It's about 26 miles, 26 and a half miles away, 43 kilometers to the south, is where Isaac had lived until he died. As one writer put it, a father on his way to see his son pauses to worship the God of his own father. The father theme is very strong in our passage today. You'll notice the language, when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Beyond that, Beersheba is where God appeared to Isaac many years before and reminded him, I'm the God of your father Abraham. And now Jacob goes down and God reminds him, I am the God of your father, Isaac. It goes from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. In Genesis 26, um, speaking of Isaac, from there he went to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built, built an altar there and called in the name of the Lord. Jacob also offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And again, there's a shift from Israel to Jacob. So Israel set out with all that was his. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night. And what did God say? Jacob, Jacob. I would suggest to you that in this passage and beyond this, Israel is used when God is intending for us to see the future, the nation of Israel. Jacob is his name as an individual. Israel is his name as the father of the, the people that will be known as Israel. You'll notice that God says to him, Jacob, Jacob, this happened in the life of Abraham. Do you remember when Abraham was going, he was about to kill Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, or Jacob said what Abraham had said, here I am. That is God seeking to get his attention. The message that God gives to Jacob has at least two important components. First of all, God is not tied to one particular place. Jacob had lived in Hebron for a number of years. Now he's on his way to Egypt. He stops in Beersheba where his father lived. And God tells him, oh, by the way, I will be with you when you go to Egypt. God is not stuck in Canaan. He's not just in one particular place. I will go to Egypt with you and will surely bring you back again. God is not a local deity. All the Canaanites had their own gods. You know, this is the God of this city, of this place. God is the God of the whole world. And Jacob, I think he knows that, but God is reminding him. God was with him when he went up to Paddan Aram. Everywhere he has been, God has been with him. 
The second thing I would point out is there are four oracles uh, among the patriarchs that say, do not be afraid. Now, I've mentioned before, it is the most repeated command in scripture, do not be afraid. But we have four specific instances in which God says, do not be afraid. The first is after uh, Abraham had rescued Lot and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, do not be afraid, I am your shield and your great reward. The second time that God does this is interestingly enough, not with a patriarch, not with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but with Hagar, when she was sort of kicked out of the household with her son Ishmael. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. The third, do not be afraid, I just read to you a few moments ago, when Isaac goes to Beersheba, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And now here in chapter 46, we hear the same language speaking, uh, God speaking to Jacob. These four oracles, one could argue, yes, it's the most repeated command, don't be afraid. But here they also point to the future. Um, in each case, even with Hagar, that Ishmael will be made into a great nation. Here God speaks to Jacob and there are four parts. I am the God of your father. Okay, that's who God is, his identification. Secondly, do not be afraid. Thirdly, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And then lastly, I will make you into a great nation there. Um, and then there's the added assurance, I will go down with you to Egypt. I will surely bring you back again. Two things occur to me as I was preparing this. First of all, we're not told that Jacob was afraid. Um, and I would argue that he was not afraid of going to Egypt. He wants to see his son, Joseph, his favorite son that he has thought for 22 years was dead. And now he finds out he's alive. I think he is so excited. Uh, I don't know that he is afraid. Okay. Um, but that's also true of the other oracles where God says to Abram, don't be afraid, to Hagar, don't be afraid, to Isaac, don't be afraid. I don't know that they were. So why does God keep saying, do not be afraid? I think it's our default setting as human beings. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and Adam hid himself from God, we are fearful by nature. And while we may at the moment say, I'm ready, I'm, I'm courageous, I'm going to do this, some little thing may trigger us and, and we go back to the default setting of being afraid. I, I remember several decades ago, I preached through the book of Joshua. And in Joshua, the first chapter, at least four times, Joshua is told, be strong and of good courage. Joshua is the commander of the army of Israel. And I, I remember saying very specifically, you know, if I was Joshua, I'd say, if one more person says to me, be strong and be courageous, I'm not going to be happy about this. But again, it is because it doesn't take much. If you think about it in your own life, it doesn't take much for us to become afraid. It's not without significance that as Dave opens our worship, we respond, I will not fear. Because fear is what comes naturally to us. There's something else, and I don't know if you remember this. There was a time, in fact, when there was a famine in Canaan, and Isaac was thinking of going to Egypt because there was no famine there. Remember Egypt, their fertility comes from the river Nile, whereas in Canaan it's because of the annual rains. And God says to Isaac, do not go to Egypt. Very specific. And now Jacob is where his father, his late father lived. And he may be thinking, well, you know, God told my father not to go to Egypt. Perhaps this is something I should not do. I think he was determined to see Joseph. But God basically gives him the okay and says, listen, don't be afraid. Uh, go down to Egypt and I will go with you. But there's also something. Do you remember God told him, uh, Joseph will close your eyes. 
With his hand, he will close your eyes. In other words, you're going to Egypt and you're going to die. <laughs> not, not something I think that we would want to hear. Um, what about the words, I will go down to Egypt with you and will surely bring you back again? I would argue Jacob did not return to Canaan. Israel did. And that's why we have the two names. Israel are the people, the nation, his descendants. Jacob will go down to Egypt and there he will die. But he will see his son Joseph first. All of this leads to what we find in verses 8 to 27, which we will not read today. It is a list of the names of Jacob's family who went with him to Egypt. Joseph's already there and with his two sons, and they are mentioned in the list as well. There's 70 people in all. Um, these 70 people are going to go to Egypt, and they will be there for 400 years. And when they come out after 400 years, there will be almost, well, 600,000 of them. They will be made into a great nation. And so as Jacob goes down to Egypt, this is not merely an individual undertaking, but a national endeavor. And then we come to the reunion, father and son, verses 28, 29, and 30. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. It's really ironic that Judah is the one who sent ahead. Do you remember whose idea was it to sell Joseph? Judah. And so there's a certain irony there. Um, it is an emotional reunion, and how could it not be? Joseph was his favorite son, and we've talked about that not being a particularly wise thing to have a favorite. Um, but he sees his son, who for 22 years he has thought was dead. And they wept for a long time. The language used, and we don't get it so much in uh, English, um, as soon as Joseph appeared to him, the word that is used there, appeared to, is only used of God in the rest of the book of Genesis, three times with Abraham, twice to Isaac, and once to Jacob. And so this is not simply a father and son being reunited. It is that, and it's, it's tremendously emotional. Um, how could it not be? But it has real strong undertones, and it is a truly significant event. Because Jacob going to Egypt, Israel will stay there, they'll become a great nation, and then in the Exodus, they are brought out by God's mighty hand. I'm reminded uh, years ago seeing uh, a news story of uh, the last days uh, in Vietnam in 1975, when the North came down and overtook the South, there was a man who had, I think, three or four children. Uh, he was married, and he had a motorcycle, and he piled them all. And if you've never seen that, you, certainly in the Philippines, we see all these kids on, on a motorcycle. He stopped at one place to go get his wife. And when he came back, the kids were gone. And through a variety of circumstances, they ended up in the United States. Um, they were adopted in Colorado and years later they found out that their father was still alive and so someone paid them and they went back and they saw their father and it was a very emotional reunion made even more emotional by the fact that they no longer spoke Vietnamese this is their father and they can't even communicate to him but certainly the reunion was I think it said more than words can um, one last thing here, you'll notice that Israel, again, it's Israel, not Jacob, says, now I am ready to die. And this reminds me of when Jesus is taken to the temple as an infant, and Simeon says, Lord, take me. I've seen your salvation that you promised me I would see, and I've seen it, and, and now I'm ready to die. And Israel says, you can take me, basically, because I have seen my son. 
In verses 31 to 34, Joseph gives instructions to his brother. Basically, he gives them a script. Like, okay, I'm going to take you to Pharaoh, and these are the things you're supposed to say. Verse 31, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh asks you, so he's preparing them, he's prepping them, what is your occupation? You should say, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So he, he prepares them. It's like, okay, I'm going to introduce you to Pharaoh. And when he asks, what do you guys do? You're going to have to say, we are shepherds. We take care of livestock. Um, why? Why all this scripting of the conversation? Well, we are told that shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians. So Goshen is sort of separate from, it's part of Egypt, but it's, you know, you're sort of in a, 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 a ghetto of sorts, if you wish, that it's a good place to live, but you'll be separate from the Egyptian people. And that's exactly what Joseph wants to happen. Why are shepherds detestable to the Egyptians? Well, several centuries before this, the Hyksos, a people from Asia, came down and conquered Egypt, and they ruled over Egypt for a hundred years. The Egyptians hated them, and they detested them, and they called them the Shepherd Kings. It was not a nice name. And so when you said, oh, I'm a shepherd, it's like, ooh, are you a Hyksos? Do you belong to those terrible people who took over our country? So, yeah, they will be able to live separately. It'll be fine with the Egyptians. So, in verses 1 through 12, uh, Pharaoh says, okay, this is what you guys are supposed to do. Verse 1, Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. Now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any of them, any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. So, as we see, Joseph gives them the script, he takes five brothers, and they, in fact, follow the script. They say, we are shepherds. Oh, no, not shepherds. You know, that's... And Joseph says, yeah, we should let them live in Goshen. Pharaoh says it's the best of the land. You'll notice, by the way, it's called Ramses. That was its name when Moses wrote this 400 years later. The name had changed from Goshen to Ramses. And that's where the people, the Israel was allowed to live. And they have... Uh, additional opportunity. Pharaoh says, listen, if they're good with livestock, I'll let them take care of my livestock. So it's you know, a job opportunity as well. Jacob is presented to Pharaoh. And I think for us, or some of us, culturally, we may miss something really important here. Um, but Hebrews 7.7 7 sort of gives us insight. It's talking about Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. Without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Now, Pharaoh is ruler over all of Egypt, but Jacob is seen as greater than Pharaoh, and it is Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. Not once, but twice. 
for Pharaoh, this may have been an age thing. You know, how old are you? He's 130 years old. Well, that's certainly older than Pharaoh is. And so someone who is older should be the one who is blessing someone who is younger. Uh, in the Philippines, we have the custom of Manupo, where uh, children usually will take the hand uh, of an adult and put it to a hand, and the adult will say to them, God bless you. Uh, it's, you know, people, the parents will prompt them, Sigi, bless, bless, do the bless. Well, it's the older person who blesses the younger, and it is Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. When he is asked how old he is, Jacob doesn't say, oh, I'm 130. Um, he says, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my father. It's worth noting that he describes his life as a pilgrimage, that he has lived as a stranger his whole life. We are told this in Hebrews 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. And this is what I hear in Jacob's description. I am a pilgrim. I am a stranger everywhere I have lived. My life is, in fact, a pilgrimage. And so far, it's been 130 years. It's not as long as my grandfather, who lived to be 170, or my father, Isaac, who lived to be 180. Um, but there's more. He says, my years have been few and difficult. The English Standard Version and the King James Version have few and evil have been the days. Um, we've studied the life of Jacob, and I think we would agree with him. He had to leave home because his twin brother Esau wanted to kill him. He was deceived and treated badly by his father-in-law, Laban. His daughter, Dinah, was raped. And as a result, two of his sons massacred a town, the town of Shechem, in revenge. His eldest son, Reuben, slept with one of his wives. He grieved for more than 20 years over the loss of his son, Joseph. Jacob has indeed had a difficult life. But he was the one chosen by God before he was born. Remember when Rebecca was pregnant? The older will serve the younger. He was the one chosen by God through whom the promises would be kept. Now we come to, well, let's just come to it. Joseph's economic policies. Chapter 47, verse 13. 13 to 26, so bear with me. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priest because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. 
You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning the land or land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Here's Joseph's economic policies. The, the famine is severe. There's no food. The people of Canaan and Egypt come and buy grain from him with money. But their money ran out. By the way, both the money of the Canaanites and the Egyptians ran out. So they come up, they come to Joseph and say, listen, we're out of money. We have no more money. We need food. Otherwise, we're going to starve to death. And very dramatic, before your eyes, we will die before you. You're going to watch us drop dead from hunger. So Joseph tells them, okay, since you don't have any more money, bring your livestock, your animals. And in exchange for your livestock, I will give you grain. Okay. We're not told this. This is a side note. We're not told this, but I think that the people were allowed to keep their grain because, I mean, if all the animals in Egypt end up in Pharaoh's ground, I mean, that's not possible. I think he allows them to keep the animals, but they, the title, if you wish, belongs to Pharaoh, now belongs to the king. Their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. This lasts for a year. So apparently they... For a year, they have money, they run out of money, and now for a year, uh, they give their animals, they run out, and so all they have left is themselves and their land. Uh, They need food as well as seed to plant for when the years of famine is over. The result is, in verse 20, Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. I do not believe that this is a policy, political or economic policy of governing, that is something we are to follow. This passage, as I'll talk about in a minute, is informative, it is not instructive. It doesn't say this is what you're supposed to do. The harshness of his policies continues. Um, that is to say, he comes up with a flat tax plan. Okay, when the famine is over, whenever you harvest, 20% of what you harvest will belong to Pharaoh. So they are slaves to Pharaoh. He owns them all. He owns all the land. And now they have to pay him 20% in terms of tax. And the author tells us, and the author is Moses, who was raised you know, by Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, he would know. Uh, still in force to this day, 400 years later, that was still the tax policy. 20% flat tax rate. I don't think that it's mentioned that this is, this is what every country should do. Okay? Um, I found at least one commentator, though, who, who disagreed. He said that this was not an exorbitant tax rate. Eh, I, I disagree. 20% seems a bit steep. The narrative explains how this policy came to be. 400 years later, when Moses is there, people might say, hmm, why is it that we pay a flat tax rate of 20%? Why is it that we belong to Pharaoh? Why is it that the land belongs to Pharaoh? Well, it goes back to Joseph's policies. It has been noted that famine is an impetus for rapid cultural and social change. And this is what happened in Egypt. You have a radical shift in in society uh, and in political authority. Now, one of the things we find here is what we would call central planning. And one of the marks of modern nation states, I would say since the 18th century, is central planning by the civil government. That the government tries to control the market by various policies. And people might say, well, Damon, that, does, that seems okay. There's nothing wrong with that because that's what Joseph did. It was very centralized. They had a a plan, an economic plan that the government instituted. Why shouldn't our government do that? I'll give you one reason. 
Pharaoh knew what was going to happen. God had revealed to Pharaoh seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. God has not revealed that to the modern nation state. God has not said to uh, the United States, okay, this is what's going to happen to your economy. People, in fact, have taken the place of God and said, we project that this is the way the economy is going to go. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, if somebody had told you in the beginning of 2020 that our economy would be shut down by a pandemic, who would have believed it? But Pharaoh knew, Joseph knew, there could be seven years of famine, okay? So his idea of central planning is based on God's revelation, not on human projection. We project this famine's going to... No, no, no. God told them how long the famine was going to last. And if you consider what we've been through in this pandemic, rather draconian measures have been imposed, mandates, based on what authorities thought would happen. We think this is what's going to happen. And again, if you go back to 2020, they told us we would be shut in for two weeks. Do you remember that? Um, it lasted quite a bit longer than that. Joseph and Pharaoh are not in that situation. They know precisely how long this is going to last, and therefore they are able to make certain policies. Joseph's example of central planning should not be used to say, this is the way God intends for governments to run for economies to be run, okay? Having said all that, there's something we can learn from this. Not policy, but something by extension. The first thing I think we can learn is that money can fail. Money can run out. It happened to the Egyptians. And the Canaanites, by the way, they ran out of money. All their money was gone, okay? Now, depending on the time and place and the culture, there are various things that can serve as money. I mean, for us, it's, we say money, we think paper. Uh, but in the ancient world, there was gold, there was silver. In some places, salt could serve as currency. Uh, sugar, other scarce commodities could be used as currencies. For the Egyptians, they run out of money. So what else can they use as currency? They're animals. And then what can they use as currency? Their land, and then ultimately themselves. If you think about it, the real money in this story is the grain. A grain can buy anything. It can buy your money. It can buy your animals. It can buy your land. It can buy you. The lesson here is that there is no ultimate, infallible, all-purpose store of value in the economic affairs of human beings. And that's why, if you think about what Jesus says, it takes on, I think, an added thing. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us it's all meaningless. He accumulated slaves, men, women, money, everything. It's like it's, it is meaningless. It is vanity. Money failed the Egyptians. It has failed many cultures in the past, and it may fail many cultures in the future. We should not put our confidence in money. It is interesting that money failed the Egyptians, but Jacob and his family were provided for. If you look at verse number 27, I stopped at verse 26, but verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. So everybody else is having a hard time, but apparently uh, Israel and his household are doing rather well. And there's something else, and this is, I think, what I want to end with. This incident described gives us a very important lesson on how we are to read the Bible and how we are to apply it. What we find in Scripture fits into one of three categories. The first is informative, or it's a narrative. It tells us what happened. The second is instructive. It tells us what we are supposed to do. And then the third is corrective. 
You know, you've been doing things wrong, and this is how you're supposed to do it now. And we need to be careful that we don't take something that is informative and say, this is what you're supposed to do. So we can't read the story of Joseph and his, I would say, harsh, harsh economic policy and say, that's the way every government should run their economy. Much of Genesis is, in fact, narrative. It is informative. We can learn important lessons from it, but rarely do we find this, this is what you're supposed to do. You should be like Jacob and lie to your dad. Obviously, no. Okay? It tells us what he did and that God in his grace worked things out, but it is informative. It's not instructive. It's not like go and do likewise. Okay? It is telling us what happened. What we find in Exodus, much of Exodus, and then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is instructive. God gives the law to Moses and he gives it to the Israelites. This is how you're supposed to live. What we find in the prophets is corrective. God told them this is how you're supposed to live and they weren't doing it. And the prophets are saying, you guys need to get your act together and come back to the right way of living. So it is either telling us something, informing us, or instructing us, or correcting us when we are wrong. When you read the Gospels, you find the same three things. We have information, the ministry of Jesus, the miracles that he did. We are told about them, okay? And then we have the teachings of Jesus in which he instructs his people. This is how you're supposed to live. And we have corrections. I mean, not only does Jesus sort of light into the religious leaders, but in the Sermon on the Mount, just two verses here, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, correction, okay? I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We need to be careful that we don't think, that's what Joseph did, that's what we should do. These are his government policies. This is what our government should do as well. I will suggest that there's a really critical passage in the New Testament that is informative, that has been taken by some as instructive. We are told in Acts chapter 2 of the early church, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And in chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. I remember very distinctly when I was in seventh grade that my, our history teacher said, you know, the early Christians, they were communists. What? What? They had everything in common. They were communists. And so basically, the implication was go and do likewise, do what the early church did. Um, and I would say, no, the passage is not instructive, it is informative. Luke is, is describing us to the situation. He's not saying this is what all believers of all time should do. Secondly, it speaks of the unity and the generosity of the early Christians. They gave to anyone as he had need, they shared everything they had. This is the way the early church was. And thirdly, if we didn't have these verses that tell us, then there were two important stories that we would miss altogether. The first is of Barnabas. Uh, it says in chapter 4, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. If we didn't know that they were sharing everything, we were like, why would Barnabas do that? Well, now we know why. That they would give it to the apostles and it would be distributed to those who were in need. The other story is that of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember, they had a piece of land, they sold it, and they decided to keep back part of the money. And as Peter said, listen, it was yours, you could have kept it. But they wanted to look like good Christians in the early church, and they lied about how much they got for the land. That story means, I think in many ways, I won't say it doesn't mean anything, but we really don't understand the implications until we see what Luke tells us. Oh, by the way, this is what the early church was doing. He is not saying, you must do the same thing. Okay? It's not instructive, it's not corrective. 
By the way, in chapter 8, when the persecution arose, many people left Jerusalem. And I would argue the people who left Jerusalem had money to do so. And those who didn't have any money were left behind. And so Paul, as he is going on his missionary journeys to Gentiles, is collecting money for the poor Christians back in Jerusalem. Romans 15, for Macedonia and Achaia, there's two provinces in modern Greece, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, the last chapter, uh, something that is really misunderstood is like, okay, you need to give your offerings to the church on Sunday. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So again, what Paul is doing is he is instructing the Corinthians. He's not instructing us. He's like, listen, the people who could get out of town in Jerusalem because of persecution, they got out. Okay. The people left behind are poor. We need to help them. So on Sunday when we get together to worship, let's collect money so we can send it to the brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem. So we must be careful when we read scripture that we read something and we're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Or this is what we're supposed to do. It seems that all the major cults have used scripture, but they've used it for their own purposes because they take that which is informative and make it instructive or corrective, and they have really missed the boat. In this passage today, we find out how Israel ended up in Egypt. We get to Exodus, we find out this is four centuries later. Things aren't going so well, but now we find out how, in fact, they got to be there. It was, in fact, the result of various trials. Joseph was betrayed and sold by his brothers into slavery. He was falsely accused and imprisoned. A severe famine came on both Canaan and Egypt. God was able to preserve his people because he had sent Joseph ahead. And now Israel and his household moved to Egypt. That's how they got there. That's what Moses is telling us. In the process, Jacob had to endure much grief thinking his son was dead, and now it is replaced by amazing joy, being reunited with his, dare I say it, his favorite son. I would remind you that this passage is, in fact, informative. It can give us some instruction. We can learn from it, but it doesn't tell us this is what we are supposed to do. We can learn from it, but we need to be careful, very careful, how we apply this text. We should not think, you know, if I were president of the United States, I would follow Joseph's policies. And it's from the Bible, so it must be correct. No, it is from the Bible. It is informative. But I would argue that Joseph's policies were, were, were harsh. I mean, in the end, Pharaoh ends up owning all of Egypt. And he owns all the Egyptians. So, by the way, later on, when the Israelites are made slaves, I don't think the Egyptians have a problem with that. We belong to Pharaoh, why shouldn't you? Oh, and Pharaoh says, okay, Egyptians, you're in charge of the Israelites. They're like, okay, we like that. This passage explains how these things came to be. But in the process, God preserved his people. He saved his people Israel. He showed great grace, but it was after many many trials. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are beyond grateful for the gift of your revelation. Perhaps not as grateful as we should be. But we confess also that oftentimes we, we try to make your word say what we want it to say. And as you convey to us your revelation, somehow we manage to twist it into rules and regulations. Something that you did not intend. 
And interestingly enough, the corrective passages we often ignore. We set aside the words of the prophets, failing to recognize that in many ways we are just as guilty as the Jews were in that time of idolatry, of in fact worshiping you and other gods as well. I think one of the more important lessons here is that money will fail us. If we put our faith in money, we will be disappointed. If we put our faith in our possessions, if we put our faith in ourselves, we will be disappointed. You are the God of all grace. Our treasure should be with you and in you, and not in what we possess, what we own, or who we are. Again, I thank you for the gift of your word, and now as we read it, may we do so more carefully and recognize that there are certain things that you're telling us, but we're not necessarily to do exactly as what was done. We are not to have central planning as Joseph did because you have not revealed the future to us. And we are not to make policies based on what he did saying, well, if Joseph did it, it must be right. I thank you for bringing us thus far in our study from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and now Joseph and of your grace and your faithfulness every step of the way. Through the trials, you were gracious to them. May we take that to heart. Thank you for bringing us together today on this Father's Day. And again, we give thanks for the fathers through whom you used to give us life and for our memories of them. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.